Welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This month, I will also cover two shows in Chicago, one in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and the other in Boston. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, musical, or theater company that you may have not known about. In today's episode, I am going to share with you my theater visits from August of 2018. A wrap-up of the New York Musical Festival, which started in July, as well as a revisit to Hello, Dolly! on Broadway to see Donna Murphy's version of Dolly Levi. Furthermore, I'll have another entry into the retrospective series with a conversation and discussion on Annie the Musical. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started. The final three productions that I saw in this year's New York Musical Festival are diverse in style and subject matter. One takes place out west, where guns rule and there are plenty of saloon gals. Another harkens back to 1962 and considers how society, families, and the medical profession dealt with homosexuality at the time. The last show takes place on Diamond Beach, the location of an eerie mystery from the past. We'll start with The Gunfighter Meets His Match. There is a lovely piece of theme music that weaves throughout The Gunfighter Meets His Match. The trumpet is featured in the melody, and you can conjure up the Wild West from old memories when this genre was popular in the movies and on television. I expect there were other songs I could select as particularly melodious, but this production was so busy it was hard to focus. As a ballad was sung, six people would be encircling the performer for no reason and with unflattering choreography. This musical was written by Abby Payne, who also plays the saloon's piano player, May. The story is basic, and there is little in the way of character building. A woman from the city moves to the west, gets married, then meets the gunfighter who teaches her to shoot. Along the way, he sings, in the same song, Let me show you a little lovin', darling, and Why don't you teach me how to love? This small, underwritten story could not bear the weight of the staging. As the title character, I enjoyed Michael Hunsaker's performance. The tone of his characterization was probably where this musical should have grounded itself. Next to last is the musical Sonata 1962. In the song Making the Day, Margaret Evans sings, Do what you should and nothing will ever go wrong. Foreshadowing in capital letters. Soon thereafter, her daughter Laura enters and is visibly suffering through headaches. They are a side effect of an undisclosed treatment. My guess was that she had a lobotomy. The musical then goes back in time to tell the story of Laura, a supremely talented pianist who receives a scholarship and goes off to college. She meets and falls for Sarah. 
The chemistry exhibited by Christina Maxwell and Annalisa Canning Skinner brightens this musical considerably, notably in the song Movie Theater. All the other characters are one-dimensional, however. Things predictably get serious, and the medical profession's barbaric treatments for sexual deviancy and sociopathic disorders are brought front and center. Sonata 1962 has some interesting moments, and there are a number of tuneful songs, including I Will Run. Toward the end of this musical, Mom gets to sing Take It Off, a bizarrely out-of-place distant cousin to Rose's turn from Gypsy. A few too many reprises and a message-heavy lament close this underdeveloped show. Last, and certainly not least, the final offering from this year's New York Musical Festival I saw was Between the Sea and Sky. When a musical has a soaring, intricate score, I sometimes find myself focusing on the music rather than the staging. Under Michael Bellow's accomplished direction, that was impossible as I wanted to see every moment of this atmospherically moody yet fun show. In 1999, two sisters are sent to the grandmother's beach house for the summer as their parents are getting a divorce. This community certainly has its share of elderly folk who remember a mysterious death that occurred when hippies were in town 30 years earlier. In the opening number, a woman appears as a specter. Who is she? The elder sister is currently reading Shakespeare's The Tempest and sees a beach mystery that needs solving. Between the Sea and Sky is a richly woven fable which managed to effectively balance its ambitions as part musical comedy, part cryptic puzzle, and part lushly imagined fantasy. Luke Byrne wrote the book, music, and lyrics to the show, and its cohesiveness is abundantly clear. Songs make sense for the story, the characters, and add significantly to the mood. The surprises delight. Every performance was excellent. I love this new musical, which has been optimally showcased to reveal its charms. A grand finale to the festival, feeling fortunate that I chose to see this show last. At the end of Nymph, I blogged and went on record that over the previous four weeks I had attended 21 performances of new musicals in development, every full production and reading at the New York Musical Festival. At the awards ceremony, they select number of awards and a best of fest, which is voted on by the audience. The cream of the crop this year compared favorably with the top nymph shows I've seen in the past. My favorite four full production shows of 2018 were An American Hero, a new World War II musical, an accomplished show with a score filled with gems, battle scenes were superbly staged, and we all fought back tears as we were watching it. Between the Sea and Sky, a richly woven fable, atmospherically moody and fun, the surprises delight, and every performance was excellent. Emoji Land, which had a catchy and delicious Broadway pop score, which is ready right now for prime time, and it delivers classic character song greatness. And finally, What's Your Wish? A truly enjoyable story with endlessly inventive staging, witty dialogue, and high entertainment value. If you want to hear further details on some of those shows, which were reviewed for July's podcast, uh, simply go back to that month and you can hear more about them. From the group of nine readings I saw, readings are not full productions, they're scripted affairs and 
with full acting, though, and direction. My favorite by far was Storming Heaven the Musical. It had an excellent, excellent score, realistically believable characters, and a winner. It covered uh, West Virginia coal miners in the early 1900s thinking about unionizing. Overall, a fun festival this year, and glad I attended. Next, we'll go to Chicago. The site is Northwestern University, and the show is Something in the Game, an All-American Musical. As a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and a current season ticket holder to its football team, I am clearly in the bullseye for the target audience for a musical based on its legendary football coach, Newt Rockney. Something in the Game, an All-American Musical, had its first outing 10 years ago and was then titled Newt Rockney All-American. The name change makes sense. This show is certainly about the famed larger-than-life man. The bigger story involves his personal orbit, including family, players, coaching highlights, and a growing college which at the time attracted unwelcome minorities, notably immigrants and Catholics. Can a rags-to-riches story centered around football be successfully turned into a big musical? The answer is yes, although the scoreboard might read field goal instead of touchdown. For Notre Dame fans, the score might instead read touchdown with a mixed extra point attempt. The show begins as Newt is leaving South Bend for an opportunity to coach at Columbia University. Immediately, we have family conflict as his wife was not consulted. Both Stev Tovar, who played Newt, and Dara Cameron, who played Bonnie, delivered heartfelt, strong characterizations. The story then tracks Newt from his arrival in Notre Dame, where he meets his new roommate Gus Dorace, a period-perfect Neil Davidson, who also plays football. The two work together to create many memorable developments in college football, notably popularizing the forward pass in a historic win over Army in 1913. There is a musical number incorporating this concept called Completing the Forward Pass, which is surprisingly effective storytelling and fun. The football scenes are the winning part of the formula here. The team's famous use of the shift allows for some very creative scrimmage line-inspired choreography. The artistic director for Northwestern's American Music Theater Project, David H. Bell, directed and choreographed something in the game. The crop of young actors from the student body, and even some from their football team, added a real sense of athleticism to this show. The superhero star of Notre Dame football and of this musical is George Gipp, who played from 1917 until 1920. He became a legend immortalized by Ronald Reagan in the 1940 film Newt Rockney All-American. Adrian Aguilar's extraordinarily fine performance hints at why this show changed its name. The musical is at its best when this talented young man is overachieving on the field while sinning and gambling off the field. The song Welcome to the Bottom is a showstopper when things go wrong for George, which he sings with the speakeasy's owner and singer. The focus on George Gipp, the Rockney family troubles, tensions with the university clergy, and a coach with massive self-promotion instincts make for a very, very full book. 
a few minor scenes should probably be reconsidered. The staging of Jimmy the Goat's saloon felt inauthentic as well. A drinking, gambling hangout around the time of Prohibition in South Bend, Indiana, would likely be a bit grittier than suggested by the smiling flapper tappers on display. Probably more like Chicago than crazy for you. Importantly, the score is strong with many memorable ballads and jazzy songs, including Bonnie's gorgeous If There Had Been Roses, George Gift's song Confession, and the title song Something in the Game. For the Notre Dame faithful, no need to fear. Our fight song makes a welcome appearance. Go Irish! The next play I saw was also in Chicago at the Windy City Playhouse. Its title, Southern Gothic. The program informs you that you're invited to the birthday celebration of Mrs. Suzanne Wellington on June 30, 1961. Mr. Beau Cotier and Mrs. Ellie Cotier are hosting the party at their home in Ashford, Georgia. The telephone rings. The caterers have been in a traffic accident. Heavens to Betsy, what shall we do? Leftover jello salad in the fridge can be repurposed. No need to panic, however, as the booze appears to be plentiful. Although Virginia Woolf has not been invited to this party, in Southern Gothic, her spirit is alive and well. When entering the theater at the Windy City Playhouse, as an invited guest, you are entering the Cotier home. You sit on the perimeter or stand in the kitchen, living room, dining room, whatever suits your fancy. This is immersive theater and you are free to move around. The 28 audience members are silent, but visible witnesses to the comings and goings of four couples who have scintillating melodrama bubbling close to the surface. Introduce alcohol... And let's find out who's a thief, who's a philanderer, and who gets a dish best served cold. The ingenious set design by Scott Davis is a remarkable time capsule. The kitchen, in particular, is classic formica and stainless steel 1950s perfection. I want to buy the table when the run is over. As voyeurs, follow various parts of this story, some of which occur in different rooms simultaneously. You already surmise that our birthday girl gets sloppy drunk. She's not alone. Everyone has significant personal dramas, some self-induced, some of the product of living in the South during this era. The skilled performances here are impressively focused, given that the audience is in such close proximity. Drinks are even handed out should you want to toast Mrs. Wellington. My pick for best in show would be the charmer politician Charles Lyon, played by an ideally cast Victor Holstein. Or maybe the slightly simple Beau Cotier, played by Michael McHugh. Can't forget his jittery wife, Ellie, played by Sarah Grant. Never mind, all eight actors shine brightly or vividly flame out in a supernova implosion as needed. Written by Leslie Lottod, Southern Gothic is a terrific entertainment given a memorable staging by director David H. Bell. After Chicago, I headed back to New York to the final closing weeks of the successful revival of the classic musical Hello, Dolly. The revival of Hello, Dolly has been a phenomenal success. Bette Midler 
headlining as Dolly Levi proved to be a casting gold mine. Her fan base enveloped her with rapt adoration, and she won every award possible. I was a bit less enthralled about her performance than the majority. She was indeed funny as always. She has outstanding presence. I thought her vocals weren't quite up to the challenge of the material. I also felt she played Bette Midler, not necessarily Dolly Levi. I will admit that the role is certainly a star vehicle, and I assume the role's originator, Carol Channing, oozed Carol Channing. I decided to see two-time Tony winner Donna Murphy's version of Dolly, which she does on the days Miss Midler doesn't perform. What was a fun revival became a celebration of this beautifully created old-school musical. First, her performance is surprisingly bigger. The scene at Miss Malloy's Millinery was elevated from spirited hijinks to outrageous tomfoolery. As a replacement in the role of Barnaby, Charlie Stemp was not only a welcome physical comedian, but also an excellent dancer. Miss Murphy also brought some additional vulnerability to her character, which helps deepen her relationship with Horace Van de Geller, played again superbly by David Hyde Pierce. The show seemed more in balance, and the conclusion more organically reached. Yes, she's a meddling matchmaker and a wisecracker, but she's also a widow who knows it is time to move on. As for the singing, Miss Murphy knocked everything out of the park, and I finally heard the version of Before the Parade Passes By that I was craving. While the entire Harmonia Gardens restaurant scene is still a little flat, or maybe dated, the title song is a joyous Broadway top-shelf masterpiece, and the audience was beside themselves with the exquisitely executed version here. Jerry Herman's score is so good, I was thrilled to hear it performed this well. The standing ovation at the end of the show was deafening, and well-deserved. Hello, Dolly closed towards the end of August. And I'm sorry, because Ms. Murphy is still crowing and still going strong. Next up, the extraordinarily well-reviewed play Fairview, presented at Soho Rep. When exiting the theater after Fairview has come to an end, my first reaction was a need for reflection time. Jackie Sibley's Drury has written a shockingly fascinating big broad comedy that is structurally dissonant, for lack of a better term. I will not spoil the enjoyment of this play for anyone. Miss Drury has serious observations to share on the subject of race, how we think about race, how race is used for entertainment, how race is divisive, how human beings are all the same underneath a layer of skin. Fairview begins as an African-American family comedy. It's grandma's birthday and her daughter is throwing a bash at her house. Her demanding and critical sister arrives. Her husband is helping her get ready, but her stress level is so high she cannot relax. The family revels in the fact that they are known for dancing. Dancing does indeed happen, and the entire family spirit soars together, if only for that moment. Familial comedies with bite are common. What makes Fairview so unique are the layers that get added on and then multiply. Sarah Benson's direction was assured. This was a complicated, absorbing piece of theater which respects the audience but forces them to think outside the box. 
Raja Feather Kelly choreographed Fairview, and her work has a big impact. The entire cast miraculously balances caricature and farce with layered dimensions of depth and realness. But the playwriting is the star here. Miss Drury has many surprises up her sleeve. I won't spoil them, and you should not miss them. This play is a co-production with Berkeley Rep, and it will be presented in October in California. A little short vacation week in Provincetown, Massachusetts, afforded me the ability to go see Beach City Bimbo. No trip to Provincetown is complete without taking in a show. At the Art House, Jinx Monsoon is in residence with her accompanist, Major Scales at Piano. The show, Beach City Bimbo, is drag catnip. Musical numbers and randy jokes are to be expected. Here they are delivered ingeniously. Jinx apparently has been told her other shows are too serious, so she has to camp it up raunchily for the P-Town crowd. She succeeds. Ms. Monsoon was the winner of the fifth season of RuPaul's Drag Race. I had not yet seen that television show, so I learned of this talented performer when the New York Times raved about their musical review, The Vaudevillians. In that show, two legendary performers were buried alive in an avalanche, but thanks to global warming, they thawed out and their old acts survived. What makes Beach City Bimbo an unqualified top-notch drag show is the technical proficiency of this act. Ms. Monsoon can sing well. Along with a very busy major scales, there are major musical numbers with fun choreography. The pantomime scenes are priceless for their length and skill in execution. After one segment was completed, Jinx said, quote, that took us five months of rehearsal. A music video break for a costume change is not merely filler. It was a stylized homage to the best MTV had to offer. Super smart humor combined with a send-up and embrace of the drag show formula, Beach City Bimbo is an excellent example of the genre as practiced by one of the most creative talents in the business. This piece should be recorded for a Netflix special. After the vaudevillians, I saw Jinx Sings Everything. If you could not get to P-Town this summer, these two sublime entertainers will be in London the week of October 24th with that show. Treat yourself, laugh, and smile. A few months ago, I reviewed another show that would be a perfect fit for Jinx. It was called The Confession of Lily Dare. As I've discovered... It's always monsoon season. From Provincetown, on a quick ferry ride, I then traveled to Boston and took in Moulin Rouge, the musical. Walking into Boston's gorgeously renovated historic Emerson Colonial Theater, opulence is the word that comes to mind. Walking to your seat, a sumptuous red valentine of a set screams theatrical grandeur. Adapted from the Academy Award-nominated film by Baz Luhrmann, this new musical is decidedly connected to the 2001 film in spirit, but has been significantly updated in its contemporary jukebox musical selections. 
No song list has been written into the program, and that is a good thing. There are surprises in store, and they are fun. The overall verdict for the show, however, is a mixed bag. The core problem for me, and those I attended with, was that there was little chemistry between the two romantic leads played by Karen Oliveau, she played Satine, and Aaron Tveit, who played Christian. Both sing beautifully, but their voices do not match well in duets. The acting by Mr. Tveit, famous from Next to Normal and Catch Me If You Can, well, his acting was frankly bad. There were far too many moments where he stands with his hands down at his sides, offering no energy as a leaning man. The effect is boring male ingenue who only comes to life during his musical solos. A Tony winner for West Side Story, Miss Olivo fares better and seemingly works harder, but she has little energy from her co-star to play off and her performance and disappearing accent suffers. As a result of muted star power, the rest of the cast blooms brightly and makes this show entertaining to watch. Six-time Tony nominee Danny Burstein is the nefarious owner of the Moulin Rouge, and he will certainly be nominated for another Tony if this show transfers to New York. He nails a ruthless character, yet managed to conjure believable, vulnerable emotion with his star, Satine. In a romantic melodrama, that intensity needs to be with the central couple, not only with the showgirl and her boss. Moulin Rouge does slow down for a minute in Act 2, and Mr. Bernstein performs the Florence and the Machine song, Shake It Out, with some of the ladies. The moment is a high point. As the villainous Duke of Monroth, who desperately wants Satine as his mistress, Tam Mutu exudes power, malevolent motives, and sex appeal. Sarnagaja and Ricky Rojas are Christian's newly found buddies in Paris, and their acting, stage presence, and characterizations are so strong that you don't see Mr. Tveit's Christian as the center of the show during their scenes together. Another huge plus is the sultry dancing of Robin Herder as one of the ladies of the cabaret. The creative team has done outstanding work here, as the sets by Derek McLean, the costumes by Catherine Zuber, and the lighting by Justin Townsend were magnificently eye-filling. Alex Timbers is a director whose work I admire in such shows as Peter and the Starcatcher and Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. In this endeavor, Act 2 is overlong and drags on, never more so than during the Roxanne number, a holdover from the film. In Moulin Rouge the musical, the elements needed for a crowd-pleasing hit are in abundance. For this to be a top-tier Broadway show, Mr. Timbers needs to focus his efforts on his proven, talented leads and make us care about the romance at the heart of this spectacle. Maybe then, the dull and emotionless ending would not just seem a placeholder prior to a sensational finale and curtain call. From the big budgeted Moulin Rouge musical to off-off-Broadway in New York we go. The theater is the tank. The musical is Red Emma and the Mad Monk. Once in a blue moon, or should I now say red, you take in a new work off-off-Broadway and walk out of the theater wholly impressed. 
Such is the feeling generated by the musical Red Emma and the Mad Monk being presented this month at the Tank. Writer Alexis Roblan and director Katie Lindsay co-created this original and ambitious piece composed by Teresa Lotz. Twelve-year-old Addison is in her room doing the usual internet surfing and tweeting. Addison is also a history buff. The show is set in the United States in 2017, where the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries exist side-by-side, online, and in theater. Addison has an imaginary best friend in the Russian mystic Grigory Rasputin, who elevated himself from poverty to holy man. Or is that charlatan? This monk was a healer to the last Tsar's son prior to the Russian Revolution and all of their assassinations. Addison is also obsessed with Emma Goldman, the writer who was a pivotal figure in the development of anarchist political philosophy in the early 20th century. Along with her lover Sasha Berkman, they planned but failed to murder steel industrialist and union buster Henry Clay Frick in support of the workers' movement. Incidentally, Addison also has her own young life's person's crises to manage. What emerges from this richly conceived phantasmagoria is much more than a history lesson juxtaposed with school-age internet drama. Red Emma and the Mad Monk confronts the politics, trials, and tribulations that lead to anarchies, both large and small. This musical contemplates the internet, our news cycle, and oppressive systems of government by imaginatively combining and contrasting these stories. Complexity is embraced and analyzed. What is the best way to make change? Is there a best way? Now for the cherry on top. Surprisingly, Red Emma is funny and very entertaining. Drita Kabashi's performance as Rasputin is light as air, yet mystical and substantial, filled with thoughtful, sometimes hilarious observations on life. Her eyes alone should have a curtain call. Maybe Burke plays Addison and believably grounds the story so he experienced thought processes from a 12-year-old's point of view. In multiple important roles, Jonathan Randall Silver was spot on in each characterization. The creative team did truly inspired work in mounting this production, notably the set design by Diggle. When you enter the theater, you immediately feel that you are in a young person's bedroom. The lighting, costumes, and in particular, the direction of Red Emma and the Mad Monk inventively showcased this unique musical. So many topical themes and ideas poured from the stage. America is, and may always have been, the promise of freedom, but that doesn't necessarily happen in practical terms. Some impressive new voices in theater worth a serious listen. Next, we go off-Broadway to one of my favorite theater companies, the Mint Theater, and their production of Days to Come. Lillian Hellman's second Broadway play was a one-week flop titled Days to Come. It followed her triumphant The Children's Hour and was staged prior to the oft-revived The Little Foxes. In his 1936 review for the New York Times, famed critic Brooks Atkinson wrote, 
quote, it is a bitter play shot through with hatred and written with considerable heat, unquote. Noted for presenting long and forgotten works, this play is getting another look at the Mint Theatre Company. Mr. Atkinson did write that this drama was elusive, and that is certainly the case. Days to Come is about the wealthy Rodman family in Callum, Ohio, a small town of Cleveland. They have owned a brush factory for multiple generations. The workers have gone on strike, and the play begins with the hiring of strike breakers. Thugs is a proper description. The weak leader of the clan is Andrew, played by Larry Bull, who clearly has marital issues with his frequently disappearing wife, Julie, played by Janie Brookshire. Much of this play seems centered around family dynamics, which include spinster sister Cora, played with appropriate jitters and indignation by Mary Bacon. She collects and rearranges figurines in between belittling the servants. The family lawyer and Andrew's lifelong friend and advisor seems to have a hand in everything. Naturally, the thugs spark some predictable drama, and tensions in the town escalate. On the side of the workers is Leah Whalen, portrayed by Roderick Hill, who earnestly advises the strikers. They're led by family loyalist Thomas Firth in an excellent performance by Chris Henry Coffey. Back and forth we journey from the factory strike angle to the broader family drama. The dialogue seemed forced and not quite natural. At first I thought the uneven acting might be to blame, but the play is thematically unfocused, so that could be the inherent problem. What I loved about Days to Come is that Miss Hellman does not really take a side for or against the family or the strikers. Everyone sort of loses here, and perhaps that is why Mr. Atkinson called her play bitter. I felt the inconclusive gray area to be the most interesting aspect of her writing. Otherwise, this revival is mildly thought-provoking and mediocre. And now for our last entry of the month, as part of the retrospective series, Annie. In April 1978, I saw the Tony-winning best musical Annie, which had opened the previous year. Every principal in the original cast was still in the show except for Andrew McArdle, who played the title character and had the audacity to grow up and out of the role. For this entry in my retrospective series, I viewed the video recording at the New York Public Library's Theater on Film and Tape collection. This particular taping of the final Broadway cast was captured two weeks before the original run had closed. As a middle schooler, I had a fond remembrance of the show and score, especially Act One. In 2002, I saw Annie again at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey. At that time, I felt I may have outgrown the material. Annie was a musical developed from the comic strip character Little Orphan Annie, which ran in newspapers from 1922 until, remarkably, 2010. Living in an orphanage, she is routinely abused by cold, sadistic matrons named Miss Asthma and Miss Treat. She meets Daddy Warbucks, who takes a liking to her, but she finds herself cast off by Mrs. Warbucks and has adventures. Early stories had Annie conquering political corruption, criminal gangs, and corrupt institutions, a thematic bullseye in 1920s America. By the time the Great Depression hit, the formula changed. Daddy Warbucks lost his fortune and died in despair at the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
Annie's 1930s adventures became more international in flavor, given Europe's struggles and the approaching World War. In 1945, Daddy Warbucks was reunited with Annie. Apparently, he did not die, but was in a coma all those years. Thomas Meehan wrote the book for this musical, which used elements of the comic strip, but really had its own story. Beginning the creative process, he chose the mood of the Great Depression, which he felt was contemporarily reflective of the then-current era of Nixon and Vietnam. In the show, Oliver Warbucks and FDR are, despite rival political affections, very close friends. When FDR is invited to dinner, Warbucks instructs the staff to call Al Smith and find out what Democrats eat. The political jokes are musical comedy light and funny. When Annie runs away, she is befriended by homeless citizens from a Hooverville tent city. In the song, We'd Like to Thank You, Herbert Hoover, they sing about the president's famous chicken-in-every-pot plan with the lyric, Not only don't we have the chicken, we ain't got the pot. Harvey Presnell was the final Daddy Warbucks, and his performance was impressive. One of the clear high points from this taping is the chemistry between him and Annie, who was then played by Allison Kirk, in the Act 2 numbers, Something Was Missing and I Don't Need Anything But You. That's the good news. The show normally shines brightest with the orphans and Miss Hannigan. June Havoc, who played Miss Hannigan, did not have the maniacal edge that won Dorothy Loudon a Tony Award. When Annie is not hitting on all cylinders, this bright and shiny upbeat cartoon can seem flat and two-dimensional. Easy Street is one of the show's great numbers, moving the plot along and firmly establishing the harmlessly evil motives of Miss Hannigan, her brother Rooster, and his ditzy dame Lily St. Regis. With Miss Havoc's version of Miss Hannigan, she's simpler and sweeter. You laugh and feel sorry for her, but the saccharine content in a show full of little girls needs a healthy dose of a playfully dark edge. Since that didn't happen here, this version lagged in what is normally the far stronger first act. The show's famous anthem, Tomorrow, solidifies Annie's score by Charles Strauss and Martin Sharnan as a memorably excellent one. There are duds, however, notably the song A New Deal for Christmas. For Annie to be considered one of the greats, though, it seems to require a superlative cast. Sweet has to be balanced with sour. For a good look at the original cast, go on YouTube and find the link to the Annie Cast Tony Awards performance. The clip is over 10 minutes long and excels in presenting the case for Annie. From my seat, I'm placing Annie firmly in the very good musical category. Apparently, for theatrical greatness, it's a hard knock life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, the first thing I'll see is the off-Broadway sold-out smash Be More Chill, which has just announced that it is going to transfer to Broadway. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Have a great day.